My guess, there's a few that trust easier than others. Others of you, if you're like me, you're a skeptic for the longest. You don't trust easily because of hurt. You've been burned too many times, and so it takes a while to build that trust. It takes time of, of getting to know the person. Are they trustworthy enough? Do they have character qualities that help you to trust them deeply? Or do they have that, like, you know what, I, I'm only going to give so much because you just got this aroma about you that I can't let myself trust. It may not even be true, but that's what you feel because of, of the connection and relationship with the person. But you know, if we struggle with this in human relationships, how much more do we when we don't rightly know God? How much so do we lack to trust God rightly and fully if we fail to actually to know Him? And that's what we're going to see this morning as we open up to Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and work our way through Exodus 7, 7. We're going to cover these two chapters this morning, uh, two and a half chapters, or two and a quarter, I should say. We're going to work our way through this. But part of the issue going on here is Pharaoh is not able to trust and to obey God because he does not know God. He does not know the Lord Almighty. He does not know El Shaddai. He does not know the one who created the heavens and the earth. No wonder he resists this call by Moses to let the people go. Because he does not know him. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been working our way so far in the book of Genesis, or Exodus. We, we've seen that... Here, God has revealed himself to Moses, and Moses is to go and to make himself known to both Pharaoh and the people of Israel, that this is your God. I have heard your cry. I am coming to deliver you. God is, is the covenant-keeping God that has stooped down to rescue his people. But Pharaoh has yet to meet this God and to see what this God is capable of. Moses saw Yahweh in the midst of a burning bush, that burning bush not consuming, being consumed by the fire, showing us that God doesn't consume those he draws near to himself. And that's where we pick up here in Exodus 5, 1 through 7, 7. We're not going to read this chunk of text. I hope you've done, been doing your homework and keeping up and in reading through Exodus as we prepare each week. So if you've not read 5, 1 through 7, 7, I encourage you this afternoon to spend some time doing that and read ahead for the next week. Be reading it so you know what's going on. But to sum this up, I, I think the big overarching picture that we're, we're seeing here in the book of Exodus is this. Exodus 2.25 reads, and, and this helps sum up my, my thesis. God saw the people of Israel and, and God knew. And then in Exodus ends in chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And I think kind of the main line of Exodus is this. God's glory goes forth as he reveals himself to his people and dwells with them. God's glory is revealed to the nations. His glory goes out as he delivers his people and dwells with them. That's kind of the, the 
overarching theme of Exodus as a whole. And then this section of text is, who is the Lord? He is the sovereign ruler of the universe who is worthy of being known, worshipped, obeyed, and trusted. And we're going to look at this in four points this morning. He is worthy of being known is point number one. Point number two, he is worthy of obeying. Point number three, he is worthy of worship. And point number four, he is worthy of trusting. Again, the main idea is, who is the Lord? He is the sovereign ruler of the universe who is worthy of being known, worshipped, obeyed, and trusted. That's what we're going to look at in these chapters this morning. So let's start with point number one. He is worthy of being known. Look here in 5.1, in Exodus 5.1, it says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron have been balking at the go, call to go, especially Moses. He's been like, God, I, I did a speech in heaven. I can't go here. I, I'm sluggish with my words. I can't go. And yet, the Lord keeps telling him, you're going to go. I'm going to send you. Go. Here, I've taken out excuses. Here's Aaron to go with you. So they finally go. They have to confront Pharaoh. And Moses tells the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh lets him go, right? Wrong. Or, or to use the sound my Greek professor uses in his daily dose, eh, eh, eh. No, sir, They Pharaoh does not let the people go. Look in 5.2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Keep in mind, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are pagans. They have a plurality of gods within their framework. Their worldview has gods of the Nile, gods uh, of the land, God, all kinds of different gods. So they don't believe in one God. So as Pharaoh says, look, I know the God of the Nile. I don't know this, this Lord, this Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the people of Israel. I don't know him. So who is he that I'm going to listen? Not to mention, he's probably thinking, you know what? You're telling me the God of, of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites wants me to let you go? If he's so powerful, why doesn't he just deliver you from my back? Why doesn't he show himself to me? This is a declaration of war against Yahweh right here. Pharaoh is declaring war. It's on like Donkey Kong. It's on like the Royal Rumble. The battle is ringing out. It's saying, let's go. Pharaoh has just declared war against Yahweh, doubting who he is. And saying, I don't know this God, therefore I will not bow to him. I will not do as he commands me to. All because he doesn't yet know him. Now, 
The Lord is going to be making himself known to Pharaoh and to the people uh, of Egypt as well as the Israelites in in the coming little bit. And we're going to look at that mostly in chapter 4. But I want us to see this in in 6.1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send me out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land, of his land. And then in, in Exodus 7, 1, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Pharaoh may not yet know the Lord, but he's about to. The Lord is going to make himself known to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh is forced to obey, that Pharaoh is forced to see why the people want to go out and worship. And he's going to learn that this God is more powerful than any other. There is none like him. He is the sovereign Lord who rules over it all. This is the God Pharaoh needs to know. And this is the God we need to know. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we can't rightly obey God, rightly worship God, and rightly trust God is not Simply because we don't have the heart. That is true. But a good part of the reason is we just simply don't rightly know our God. We do not know Him in depth. We don't know Him the way we should. No part of creation is left without excuse in knowing God. In Romans 1, 18-23 that Darcy read at the beginning of the service, we see that here Paul is making the point that even... God is known to the pagans, the least of these, by creation itself. This is why Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. This God has made Himself known through general revelation. He's made Himself known in His creation. His creation rings out crying, telling of His excellency. Now, I know you flatlanders aren't used to the mountains. As a good East Tennessee boy, I, I've spoiled and been on some of the mountains in East Tennessee looking down at, at the beautiful river flowing through and cutting through the mountain. If you've never gotten the opportunity to do that, you, you've missed out. Because there's such beauty as you stand on a rock and look down and see the, the beautiful Tennessee River weaving through the mountains. It's glorious. I don't see how one can look at something like that and not think there has to be a masterful mind behind it. God has has revealed himself here in his creation. His handiwork is written all over. You look up at the skies, and even as the seasons change and the moon shifts from the different phases, God's glory is written over everything. But God's not left it just a chance for general revelation. He's made himself known through his given word. He's made himself known even more so in our day and time through the Son. Listen to what John 1.18 says. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. 
He has made him known. Then again, John 14, 7 goes on to add, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Talking about in himself. God has not left it to chance for himself to be made known. He's given his general revelation in, in creation, but he's given a special revelation in the giving of his word and the sending of his own son, Jesus, to make him known. This God has made himself known to us to be able to know him intimately. But there's a danger here. You're like, Pastor, look, we're, we all believe we, we know God, right? But the problem with this is do we actually know God? There's a difference between knowing about God and intimately knowing God. Imagine this. Think about it this way. If you, your relationship with God, if how you spend time with Him, how you read of His Word, how you pray and communicate with Him, if you were to do that with your spouse or your children, how deep would that relationship be? If the way you, you talk to God in prayer and, and the way you sit and listen to Him was the way you listen to your spouse, would it be a good relationship or not? That's the challenge. That's the challenge for all of us. You can ask Darcy. I'm constantly like tweaking how I spend my time with the Lord because I want it to go deeper. I don't ever want it to be complacent. But we have to know God. That doesn't mean we just open up a devotional read and as soon as we're done, we shut it. Or, or maybe even some of us open the Bible and actually read bits of it, but then shut it and we're done. How many of us spend time allowing the Bible to read us? To examine us? To do hard work in us? It's not enough just for us to open up and go through those disciplines just mechanically, robotically. If we're to actually allow God and His Word to read us, that means to apply what it's telling us, we have to say, okay, God, what in here are you saying? Like, what, as you call it sin, what am, what am I seeing in me? And I think this is a real danger for us because... Too many of our conversations, brothers and sisters, it goes to them out there. It's no wonder the world out there who, who rejects King Jesus as their authority rebels against him in action. What's astounding is that we who call ourselves followers of King Jesus and give allegiance to him still reject his authority. Because we don't allow the word to actually read us. We think because we've made a profession of faith, faith, we've walked an aisle, we've been baptized, somehow we've got our stuff together, brothers and sisters. And if you're visiting here, even more so, we don't gather because we're perfect and have it all together. We gather because we desperately need Jesus still. Over and over again, we need Jesus. And that word has to do that work in us. That's part of an, an intimate relationship, speaking truth into one another. Are we allowing God's word to speak truth into us? Are we seeing, okay, Lord, your word tells us not to gossip, not to slander. You know, I've been bad about 
being quick with my tongue and speaking evil of somebody to their face or even worse, behind their back. God, forgive me. God, I'm careless with how I, I handle what it means to love my neighbor, let alone in the way I've been loving my enemy. Forgive me of that. That's what it means to allow God's word to read us, to do hard work in us. Because that's what it actually means to know God. As, as we see more of Him jumping off the pages, as He's speaking to us, we're saying, okay, God, you're, you're not speaking to others here in this time. You're speaking straight to me. How does this apply in my life? How does this change me? Give and take. That's what a relationship is about. And, and brothers and sisters, if your own marriages aren't looking like that, how in the world is that with your God meant to look? We have to allow the Word to change us. That's part of knowing God. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. One of the reasons we need to know God is this. Packer writes, Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives, as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Travelagur Square, and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. But again... We have to allow God's word to, to expose that in us so we can actually know him, to know about how we live in this world. We can't rightly see ourselves rightly if we don't allow the word to do that work in our hearts. We can't actually know God and, and live accordingly if we fail to put that together. We have to know our God, brothers and sisters. And it goes more than surface level. It goes deep. To knowing God means to knowing everything we possibly can about Him. Being willing to take our time in the, in the Word, in our devotion time more deeper. Being able to take our Bible studies deeper into the Word. Allowing us to grow in the knowledge of God. We all want to be theologians. Meaning the study of God. We want to all be Growing and as experts in the study of God, not so we can just be puffed up with knowledge, but so that we can know our God. Do we actually see Him as the one infinitely worth knowing? We need to be in the Bible to know our God. And He's best summed up by this in the fourth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is, What is God? The answer? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Brothers and sisters, is this the God we know? The unchanging, all-powerful, the holy, the wise, the just God. And does that play out in our own lives? Do we seek to follow him in the obedience of that? And that's where we turn in point two. He is worthy of our obedience. Pharaoh first did not know God. He also says, who is he that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Yes, we're only in second point of these two chapters, or second verse of these two chapters. 
5.2, I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. We can't rightly obey God without the knowledge of God. Pharaoh can't rightly let Israel go because he doesn't know this Lord, this Yahweh, this El Shaddai. He can't obey because he doesn't know. Friend, if you're an unchristian, I'm talking specifically to you for a moment. If you do not know God, there is no way you can come to the obedience of faith. There's no way you can be a, a worshiper, worshiper of God without first knowing Him. So the first step in, in obeying God is first to actually get to know Him. Take some time and read the Gospel of Mark. Read the Gospel of John and get to know the I Am of the Bible. The one who created it all. And if you need some help, come find me after the service if you're here and you do not believe. I would be more than happy to sit down and set a time to read the Bible with you and just explore its claims of who God is. That's the first step for you in obeying is first coming to know this God so that it may lead you to faith and belief. But brothers and sisters, we too struggle in our own obedience of faith. We struggle to allow that word to do a work in us. We struggle with our tongues so loose because we fail to obey what the scriptures tell us. Too many of us grumble and complain because we fail to see the contentment we should have in the God of the Bible because we fail to see who he is. That he's worthy of being content in. We fail to, to be about us and, and what we seek preference instead of about one another because we fail to see the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Again, because we don't know him. Brothers and sisters, if, if the first thought in, in your mind each week as you leave here is, man, I really didn't like that because it wasn't what I want. You might need to do some hard work. Because it's not always about us. Trust me, there's songs we sing, that there, there's aspects that I don't like. But I'm going to try and sing my heart out unless there, there's a theological problem with it. Why? Because it's not about me as we gather. It's that one anotherness. But we have to know where God to allow that heart work to begin in us. It has to be about God and knowing Him and allowing those things to affect us and cause us to obey. Brothers and sisters, let us know our God and let us obey Him. Pharaoh didn't obey God. He didn't let the people go because he did not know God. Let us know our God and let us obey Him because then a right worship will fall. A right worship will fall. And that's where we turn in our third point this morning. He is worthy of worship. Now things are going to pick up a little bit. In verse 3 it says, Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, and lest he fall upon us with, his, with pestilence or with sword. So, so Moses and Aaron asked her, Let us go. We want to go on a... 
a, a three-day journey to, to get away from the Egyptians and to worship our God. Now, what they're saying and, and ultimately what Pharaoh knows is they don't want to just go on a three-day journey. They don't want to. They're, they're going away. They're taking everything and going. Why? Because they can't worship God where they're at in the midst of the pagans. Because the offerings would be unpleasant to the people of Egypt. The, the different sacrifices they're called to do. But notice how Pharaoh misses what they're asking here too. He says, but the king of Egypt, there in, in Exodus 5.4, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Give back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Pharaoh accuses them of wanting to go worship because of being lazy, idle people. He, he doesn't get why they go to worship. It, it's not just because they, they want to break from labor, so they go and worship God. That's kind of what Pharaoh is implying here as he burdens them with these heavier tasks. He doesn't rightly see God is worthy of worship because of who he is. Again, it all goes back to a knowledge of God, knowing God. We cannot rightly worship God if we fail to know Him in all His ways. We must know our God to rightly worship Him. Pharaoh misses the call to worship because he doesn't know this God. But I fear for many of us, we too miss what true and genuine worship is. Because we don't know our God the way we should. And to the depth we should. How many of us are, are guilty of making statements along the lines of, you know what, I really didn't feel the Spirit move today in worship. In other words, what, what you're saying, whether you realize it or not, is, I didn't have that nostalgic feeling that get up and, and jump and move because it wasn't to, to my uptick. It, it wasn't to my bead, my groove, so I, I didn't feel like the Spirit was present today. Whether you believe it or not, that's essentially what you're saying because you fail to see what worship is. Worship is not because of us having a right feeling and, and mood within our gathering. Worship is, is seeing the indescribable work of God and declaring that worth to Him. That's why everything we do is word-centered. We want to sing Songs that are centered on the Word. We want to have scripture reading so that we come back to the Word. We want to have prayers that are, are echoing what the Word has already said. And, and we want to preach from the Word. We want to see the Word visible in that of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Because it's Word-centered. And where the Word goes forth, the Spirit is at work. So, so when we make statements like that, uh, uh, I didn't really feel the Spirit... We neglect the power of the Spirit and how the Spirit works. The Spirit works in tandem like a good one-two punch with the Word. Imagine if a, a boxer only had a good one punch and not a good second punch. Not going to be very effective. 
But that's what we're doing when we say that the Spirit works separate from the Word. We're saying He's got the good one punch, but not the good one too. The Word and Spirit work in tandem. And as those happen, as we take the Word and, and tell the truth of who God is through song, through scripture reading, and through the preaching of the Word, our hearts should be being like, wait a minute, this is my God? He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise and adoration. He's worthy of falling. He's worthy of everything. So that we can stand and respond with songs such as, To God be the glory, great things He has done, because we see the infinite worth of His glory. We respond as we are today within Christ alone, focusing on, on the power that no power, no scheme of hell can deliver us from the power of the gospel, from the security we have in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do we know our God enough to rightly worship Him? We need to rightly know Him and worship Him correctly. Worship is about the truth of God that starts with knowing our God. Pharaoh can't grasp the people going out to worship God because he doesn't know him. The people don't go out to worship God in their idleness or when it's convenient. We go to worship God because he alone is worthy of that worship. He's worthy of giving it all to. He's worthy of, of gathering every Lord's Day on the first day of the week as the church has done for 2,000 years and singing together, praying Together and sitting under the preached word together. There's a togetherness in it. There's a beauty in it because God is worthy of worship and because we need one another in helping us to rightly worship God. We need one another pointing us back to those truths. But it all flows together. Worship, obedience, all flow with knowing God. But most importantly, Trusting God flows from knowing Him. So let's move to point number four. He is worthy of trust. Pharaoh's increased the burdens of his people. The people begin to cry out like, Why have you added this hard work to us? The, the, the foremen are no longer giving us straw, and yet they're beating us. Like, come on, Pharaoh, like, ease us up. Look, look down here in, in 5.13. Uh, the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task. Each day is when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today? And yesterday is in the past. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Wait a minute. Warning, warning. Why are they going to Pharaoh for deliverance? Why are they, they not continuing to cry out to Yahweh, I am, for deliverance? Because ultimately they're struggling for trust in God. They're struggling because they don't yet fully know their God. The people are struggling to believe God and to see He is worthy of trust in that moment. 
So, so they, they go to Pharaoh, cry out to him, why do you treat us this way? And they're in 17. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. So the heartache, the, the suffering, the opposition is still there. So they, as they come out, pretty much getting a, a boot to the face from Pharaoh and saying, get out of my sight and go work. Stop being lazy, slothful beings. They run into Moses and Aaron. And there, notice what they say in 520. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to him then, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're mad at Moses. They blame Moses for making them stink before the Egyptians and their lot even harder. And then Moses, surely Moses believes God still. No. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses doubts God because he doesn't fully know who his God is. He doesn't remember and recall who he is. God has already told Moses, I am. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God who remembers my covenant. And yet, as circumstances get harder, they forget. They forget who this God is. So the Lord, being gracious and merciful, dives here into 6, 1 through 13 and reminds Moses, this is exactly who I am. This is why you trust me. Because of who I am. And so 6-1, we've already looked at that the Lord says, I with a strong hand will drive them out of this land. But, but follow me in, in 6-2 and 6-3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, it's easy to get caught up on that last part, but... The name of the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. But that's actually just a side note. They didn't see the Lord in, at, at his fullness of, of the Lord Almighty. They didn't see him in that fullness. But Israel is about to see that. Moses is about to see that. And above all, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are about to see that. But who is this Lord God Almighty? Now, the ESV, and I, I think if I remember right, the, the NIV and, and CSV both have this note as well, and maybe a few other translations. You should see a, a, a scribble next to God Almighty, and it, it should cause you to look down in a reference, and you're going to see Hebrew, El Shaddai. El Shaddai is one of the names in the Hebrew Bible for God. This is talking about God Almighty. The powerful, the ruler, the sovereign. This is who God is. He's saying, I am the Almighty. Nothing can come against me. I'm the sovereign rule. I'm the king of it all. Nothing stops me. I am 
And I am about to act. I will do these things. Your call to trust isn't in the circumstances. It's in me, the promise giver. The one who has declared, I will do. And, and notice how God reiterates this in, going forward and forward and following. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Why do we trust? Because of exactly who God is. The Almighty. The King of creation. There, there's a hymn I know we don't know it well called All Creatures of Our God and King. All creatures of our God and King. We lift up our voice because He is the King of everything. Friend, again, if you're a non-believer, I'm talking to you for a moment. You may think that because you've yet to believe, you don't fall under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Wrong. He's the Sovereign Lord. He's already the King of Kings. And a day is coming, we know in, in Philippians chapter 2, that every knee will bow and give allegiance. The only difference for you, friend, is if you're not believing, if it makes it to that day before you have believed, you're going to be forced to make that declaration, but then it will be too late. What are you waiting for? See that He is the Lord Almighty and believe in Him today. Stop thinking that you can escape making him Lord by simply not declaring it. It doesn't work that way. He will be declared Lord by every tongue of every tribe of every nation because he is the Lord. Believe today. But friends, how do we doubt and struggle too in that claim? We want to say, oh yes, I believe in the Lord's promises, but when things get hard, when circumstances come against us, we begin to, to shrink back and, and turn to other things for trust. Like the Israelites turned to Pharaoh instead of the Lord. What is it we're putting our trust in as things get hard? Do we find a greater security because we live in the United States? Brothers and sisters, I... Our brothers and sisters in, in third world countries who had nothing would put us to shame with their faith. Because they're believing when they have nothing of this world. We put too much trust in the things of this world and our comfort and ease. And it shows. And it's because we rightly don't know the Lord. We confuse the lines of, of who we are as the people of God with the Old Testament of what God defined the people of God in Israel. The blessings are ours if we're the people of God, but not in the same way. Verses like 
Second Chronicles 7, talking about it, if you will believe, I will heal your land. That's a specific time promise to the people of Israel, not to us today. Because guess what? The people of God aren't the United States. The people of God are people from every tribe that have believed in Jesus. We have brothers in the Sudan. We have brothers and sisters in South Asia. We have brothers and sisters in China and North Korea. We have brothers and sisters in Iraq and Iran who are as much part of the people of God as we are. And we stand not upon the promises of this world. We stand on the promises of King Jesus that he is coming and establishing a new kingdom where he is king and he will rule and everything will bow to him. That's the promise we're given. But we're not just given some promise by anyone. We're not given that promise simply so that we can feel good and have a false hope. I know different ones of us have certainly been lied to at different times by different people. Broken promises. But I can assure you, no matter how many promises have been broken, because of the one who is making these promises, we have all the certainty in the world it will come to completion. I am is making them. The sovereign Lord is making these promises. If he made these promises to Moses and the people of Israel, I am going to deliver you. How much more certainty do we have the promises in Jesus Christ? Who has come. Who went to the cross having lived 33 years of perfection. Fully obeying God. Perfectly. And yet dying the death we deserve as sinners. He went to the cross so that we could be made free. And have eternal life in him. That's the assurance we have. That's the promise we have if we believe in Jesus. And we can guarantee it will come. Because he has made it. He who is else should die. He is the Lord Almighty. Nothing will stop these plans. Just this week in Paul Tripp's devotional, New Morning Mercies, I read this and and posted it on Facebook. If you are going to reach for the life-giving promises of the gospel, you must also celebrate the absolute rule of the one who, because of his rule, is able to deliver those promises to you. Hope is not just found in the beauty of those promises, but in the incalculable power and authority of the one who has made them. Our hope is not just in the promises, brothers and sisters. Our hope is in the one who made the promise. In El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty, who has all power under him, who's ruling even now. Even in the midst of the ending of a a two-year pandemic. Who is ruling even in the midst of war going on in the east. Who is now even in the light of death. He's the sovereign Lord ruling over it all. He's the one ruling in the midst of, of family members not believing. He's the one ruling in the midst of family conflict. He's ruling over it all. The question is... Do we know this God and trust him? Do we trust that he is actually El Shaddai and that nothing comes against him? Brothers and sisters, there is nothing 
the enemy can do to stop him. No power of hell, no scheme of man can block us from his hand. We have an assurance in Christ who is already on the throne next to the Father, ruling and reigning. Our trust is in him and him alone. Know him, believe in him, rest in him, worship him, and obey him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you.